Well, hey there, church. I want to welcome all of you across the network to week one of Not So Average Joes. And I'm super excited about this journey. And it's great to gather together as a church in one church in multiple locations. In fact, it's so good for me because this past season has really been, I've been hanging in Romans 8, 28 in a lot of the season and things that are happening around us. And, and I know the scripture is, is living and active. It's, it's God-breathed. It's useful in all kinds of scenarios. But there are just some times where there are some scriptures that just for, feel more real and relevant in the particular season that you're in. And Romans 8.28 has been that for me recently and for many others even in our region. And, and it's simply the place where Paul says that we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. And that is, that is powerful truth. It, it's, it's encouraging truth. But I think in a world marked by tragedies, brokenness, and pain, we can begin to ask the question, does he? Like we can begin to wonder, does he really work good in all things? What about the things that we have messed up, the mistakes we've made? Does he still work good in those things? And the answer is absolutely yes. He is always working for the good of those who love him in all things. But it's not uncommon to struggle with trying to understand how he does that. Which is why I'm really excited about this series. Because he is always working for the good of those who love him in all things. And we're setting aside four weeks to look at four people, all with the name of Joe, who are not-so-average Joes to help us understand how to experience and live more fully into this reality. That he works all things for the good of those who love him. And I'm glad you're here as we start this conversation. Many of you know that I actually grew up in western Pennsylvania, uh, part of the country with lots of forests and rolling hills, uh, uh, an area where hunting was common. In fact, the first day of buck was a school holiday where the school was closed. It was just, that's how significant it was. And, and I was in a family that didn't hunt. My, not because we were opposed to it, we just didn't. My dad didn't hunt, he didn't teach me, and so people would ask me to hunt, invite me to go, and, and I never went until in my mid-30s. You see, I have two sons, and when they were younger, they began to talk about a desire and, and, and interest in hunting, and, and I wanted to be able to take them. I wanted to know how to do it so that I could teach them as their father. So I asked a friend of mine to teach me how to hunt, and he was gracious enough to let me come along and learn from him. In fact, on our very first trip, we went out into the cabin, and, and on the first day, left the cabin early in the morning before dark and headed off into the woods. And if you've ever been in the woods before sunrise, when it's dark, it's dark. And there's lots of things to bump into, trip on, get poked or cut or, or hit by, because the woods is just the woods. And I've been in the woods for military things and all kinds of dynamic, but in this particular case, it was a cold, crisp fall morning, my first hunting venture. I prepared all my equipment. I had used the detergent to make sure my clothes were all unscented. I was ready to go, but at the point that we left the cabin and went out into the woods, I had to fully rely on my hunting buddy. He knew the area. He knew where we were going. I didn't know the area, and I didn't quite know where we were going. And as we walked in that darkness, every so often I'd use a red flashlight to make sure I could see a little bit around me, just enough to know that I was falling behind him. But as I followed him, man, I, my shin hit some, some logs, and my ankle rolled in some holes, and I took some branches to the face. And eventually we made it to the bottom of a tree with a ladder that led up to a, a, a tree stand. And at that point he said, I don't, you're not following me anymore, you're going to need to head up there. And I knew that if I didn't, that would be a pretty short hunt. And so I did. 
got up in there, sat down, hooked in, and I waited. It was still dark, couldn't really make sense of where things were, and I just waited for sunrise. But once the sun came out, man, I could see the beauty of God's creation. I could, I could see the journey that we had walked in and why we had come along that path. And I could even understand why he had chosen to position me in the place that I was. See, that whole journey in, although complicated, was still good. I wasn't frustrated or angry or, or even fearful in the dark or getting hit by branches along the way or bashing my shin on a log or two. It was still good. It was worth the complexity to get to the destination. And even though I couldn't see around me in the darkness, it was still a safe space of movement to that location to accomplish the task. And I didn't have worry or anxiety. It was all good because I knew my hunting buddy had my best interest in mind, that he was seeking to take care of me, and he could be trusted. So we spent the next few days getting up early in the morning, heading out into the darkness into different spaces, and experiencing successful hunts. It was, a, it was a great process for me that allowed me to then turn around and be able to teach my sons, Joshua and Daniel, how to hunt. And we went on many trips. We had lots of great experiences, built lots of memories around it. It was just good father-son bonding moments. But in all of that journey, whether it was my individual journey or my, my journey with my sons, I, I learned lots of things, but all of that also positioned me to understand or recognize something. I began to recognize that I did not readily give the same kind of trust to God that I was willing to give to my hunting buddy in all circumstances. That, that, that he is looking out for me, has my best interest, and that he's trustworthy. See, I had bumped into things along in my journey that, that were dark. They were kind of like branches in the face moments. And, and there's that space to begin. Is he really looking out for me? Does he have my best interest? Can he be trusted? But he can be. And I wonder if along your journey you haven't bumped into a few things, taken a few proverbial branches to the face, and you've begun to question, is he really looking out for you? Does he actually care? And can he be trusted? You know, I think if we're honest, there are times that we can struggle to trust. That we may not extend the same level of trust to God that I extended to my hunting buddy, even if we want to. But the good news is we actually can. When we understand how it all works, we begin to live into a level of relationship where God works all things for the good. When we understand how that dynamic works. In fact, your first feeling, if you're using your note guide, is, is an anchoring truth for us as we have this conversation today. That trust is the fruit of a relationship in which you know you are loved. Trust is the fruit of a relationship in which you know you are loved. This is an anchoring reality for us as we talk today. Because I think life is often like my first hunting experience where we find ourselves walking out into spaces that feel really dark and we just can't see everything around us and make sense of it all. We may not even know exactly where we're at or not quite sure where we will end up, but the reality is that God has our best interest in mind. He is seeking to take care of us and he can be trusted. And trust is the fruit of a relationship in which you know you are loved. There's a guy in scripture who, to me, as I look at his story, seems to kind of move in and out of dark spaces. His name was Joseph. And Joseph starts out almost like a prince in his homeland of Canaan. He, he, he has prominence within his family. But, but then he kind of moves into a space where he's, he's a slave, imprisoned. But then he ends up a, 
uh, leadership in a house of a man named Potiphar, almost as a prince in that household. But then he ends up back in prison. Until, until years later, he ends up as the, almost the prime minister of Egypt, second only in leadership to Pharaoh. It's this weird journey of kind of in and out of dark spaces, moving from good to awful, from awful to good, kind of back and forth. And Joseph is our first not-so-average Joe in this conversation. Now, his story is contained within the book of Genesis from chapter 37 to chapter 50. I encourage you to take time to read it this week. Chapter 37 to chapter 50. We're actually going to pick up his storyline at Genesis chapter 39. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to grab it, turn to it, put your, put your thumb in there. We're going to get to it in a moment. Genesis 39. But if you're familiar with Joseph and his story at all, in any sense of it, you may know that he's the son of Jacob and Rachel. He had a number, had a number of half-brothers. And you may also know that he was his dad's favorite, which didn't really sit well with his brothers. He also had the gift of prophetic dreams and being able to interpret dreams. And one of the dreams he had is that, that he would rule his brothers and they would bow before him. And he told his brothers that. That did not go very well for him. They end up selling him into slavery, and he ends up in Egypt. And in that space, he ends up working in the house of a man named Potiphar. But through some false accusations, some betrayal and complexity in that, he ends up back in prison. In prison, he helps some people who actually forget. It's years later that he is then positioned to help Pharaoh. And Pharaoh positions him as second in command in Egypt. And from that position... Joseph is able to be rescuer, prince again, of his people in saving them from a famine that would last seven years. See, Joseph's journey in and out is almost a pendulum of swinging from good to bad. It's like he moved in and out of dark spaces. And when we read and understand his story, we can begin to ask why, or better yet, how. How did Joseph endure hardship, injustice, loss, pain, prison, and yet still ultimately do it without anger and resentment? How could he navigate all of the dark spaces of life that he went in and out of with confidence and courage and grace? To find himself in a foreign land among a foreign people without his family not necessarily knowing where he was or where he would end up, yet still all the while never turning his back on God and ultimately becoming a not-so-average Joe. Joseph's story is fascinating. We may think, okay, he was able to do that because he had, things, he had like strength of character, he had, he had an incorruptible set of morals. He had, he had an iron will. He, I think he had those things. Those were true and, and true in part, but that wasn't the why and how he could navigate all that. You may think, well, remember, he has the ability to have prophetic dreams and to interpret those. So he was special. He had some special skills. And he even had a bit of a Midas touch where everything he did seemed to work out. Well, that's true as well and played some part in it, but it's not the why and how to how he was able to navigate all the complexity and be in position for God to work good out of all of it. See, the reason of the why and how in Joseph's journey really boils down to one thing, just one thing, and it's something you and I can have and access today if we so choose, and it's simply the issue of trust. Trust. 
We already talked about briefly that trust is the fruit of a relationship in which we know we are loved. But I want to take a step back to understand what that really means by looking at the issue of presence. uh, The presence of God. It's a critical factor to understanding how trust becomes the fruit in a relationship in which we know we're loved. So this is where we're going to go into Genesis chapter 39. We're picking up Joseph's story where he's, he's in Egypt and he's now working in the house of a man named Potiphar. So Genesis 39, we're actually going to start with verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master, Potiphar. Verse 3, when his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate." Listen, that's exceptional. And it's exceptional because it comes by presence. It's because of this with dynamic. And one of the things when we lean in deeper into the story of Joseph is that we see a reoccurring reality is that God was with Joseph. God was with Joseph. It gave Joseph proximity both in the dark spaces and the not so dark spaces. In all the complexity, there was proximity. Joseph had favor. Joseph was a likable guy. People seemed to get along with him. But the simple reality was that was a direct result of God being with Joseph. It was presence. The presence of God changed the dynamic. It's very cool that it was because it meant favor. It meant blessing. It even meant success. But here's the thing about the presence of God. That is not the final point. That is not the ultimate point of his presence. In fact, we can look at Joseph's life and see that God was with him the whole time in both what was dark and what wasn't, both the good and the bad. And the reality is that God's presence doesn't simply mean a trouble-free journey. The presence of God can still have with it complexity. to, To have God's presence in our lives doesn't always mean a trouble free journey, but what it does mean is that we can have a not so average one. A not so average life because of His presence and power at work in our lives. See, one of the things about Joseph's life, he has this favor with Potiphar, but that's about all to turn. He's going to swing again back into a dark space because. Very shortly, Potiphar's wife is going to try to seduce Joseph. He's going to resist that. He's going to maintain high integrity, high morals. He's going to flee from her, but she is going to lie and say that he attacked her. And he ends up being punished, having been falsely accused. Let's take a look at this. This is still Genesis 39. Verse 20, Joseph's master took him and put him in prison. Now here's a very interesting thing about that. And this is extra biblical. This is just me kind of looking at this. The fact that he put him in prison tells me maybe Potiphar had some semblance of an idea that maybe this wasn't quite right. Because the actual punishment should have been death. But he ends up putting him in prison and he puts him in the the king's prison. Again, that's extra biblical. It's just me thinking through it. But here's what the scripture does say. The palace, he put him in the, the prison, the palace where, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was what? With him. With him, he showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Verse 22, so the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison. And he made him him responsible for all that was done there. 
The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. This is Romans 8, 28, playing out in the Old Testament, right here. God working good in all things. And the reality is, God wants to be with. He has created us for fellowship with him and relationship with him. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. He was with them. He was with the people of God, the Israelites. He was with Moses, and he declared to Moses, man, I will be with you. He was with Joshua, and he says, I will be with you. And he's with Joseph. And the crazy thing is, he promises to be with us. And to anyone who will follow him. The reality is that God is with us. He is with you. Well, at least he wants to be. And, and he can be. But he seeks to be with. And in a context and relationship of trust that's rooted in love, we get presence. Being with him. Look at what the Lord says. This is actually in Matthew chapter 28. Giving some instructions around like why we exist as, as the people of God. To make disciples and to baptize and to teach. But take a look at this. Here's what he says. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize, teach. And then he gets down here and he says. And surely I am with you always. To the very end of the age. I am with you always. That's a promise. God has promised to be with us when we submit our lives to him through Jesus. Presence. Having his presence in our life is pretty straightforward. It's simple. It's guaranteed in a relationship of trust rooted in love. Trust is the fruit of a relationship in which we know we are loved. And when we step into relationship with God through Jesus, when we say, Jesus, I give you authority in my life. I want you to be my Lord. Wash me clean of the junk of my life. When we step into that posture of trust and demonstration of love, we get presence. And that component of having the presence of God is not something we have to worry about. That's on God's end. As long as we step into relationship, we can have his presence. If you've never done that, page three of your note guide has some instructions to do that. But whenever we step into relationship out of trust and love, we get, we get presence. So we don't have to worry about fighting for or creating the presence of God in our life. We need to worry about our part of it, which is simply trust. Trust is the fruit of a relationship in which you know you are loved. Now you may say, I trust. Yes, I trust. But quite often, many of us don't actually live that out in our daily lives. We say it, but we don't actually do it. It reminds me of the story of a man by the name of Jean-Francois Gravillet. He was a French acrobat, actually better known as the Great Blondin. His fame rose as he was the man who walked the tightrope across the Niagara Falls. 1,100 foot tightrope, 160 feet above the ground, no safety harness. In 1859, when he did that, he blew people's minds. They went crazy about it. It was so hugely successful that the great Blondin ended up doing it more than 300 times in his career. Every time he did it, he tried to find new ways, more dangerous ways to do this outrageous thing. He did it blindfolded, tightrope across Niagara Falls, 1,100 feet, blindfolded, no safety harness. He did it on stilts. He took a stove out to the middle one time and he cooked an omelet out there. He was doing anything he could to keep the show going and the people pleased in the crowd. In fact, one of his greatest tricks came down to the wheelbarrow trick. 
So he would go out and do his show, and he'd walk across the tightrope above the falls multiple times. People would get excited and cheer, and then he would grab a wheelbarrow, and he'd say, Hey, how many of you think that I can take this wheelbarrow across the tightrope blindfolded? And the crowd would go wild. They'd say, Yeah, we totally believe that. And he would do it. Then he'd come back, and he'd say, How many of you think I can do it again? And they'd be like, Yes, you can totally do it again. And then he goes, How many of you think I can do it with a person in the wheelbarrow? And they're like, Oh my goodness, you can totally do that. You're the best and greatest tightrope walker in the world. And then he'd go, Who wants to get in? (laughs) And silence. And he'd say, No, no, who wants to go for a ride with me back across? Who wants to get in? Silence. No one willing to get into the wheelbarrow. And all the times he did that, there's just a few exceptions. Once was his mom. (laughs) See, I find it fascinating that this crowd who believed that the great Blondin could go across a tightrope doing all kinds of crazy things and can do it with a wheelbarrow, but wouldn't dare climb into it. They had the belief that he could do it, but... They they said that he could do it, but in the end, their actions proved they didn't believe. And I think many times, many people are living their spiritual lives in a very similar way. Saying we believe, but not actually willing to demonstrate that trust to believe. See, it's really easy when the risk and cost is low to say we trust and believe. Even just to say we trust is a lot easier. We don't have to prove it. (laughs) But when the cost and risk is high, that's different. But if we believe, if, if we trust, we don't just say it, we demonstrate it. We don't just believe it, we get in. When God says, get in and let me lead you, That's when we demonstrate trust. And quite often I think that God's ability to work good out of all things in our life first requires us to get in his wheelbarrow. And until we do, he can't. Or he won't. Trust is the fruit of a relationship in which we know we are loved. When the risk is low, it's one thing. When the risk is high, when the stakes are high, When the pain is high, it's much different. And what made Joseph a not-so-average Joe was that when the stakes were high, when the pain was high, when the loss was significant, he chose to place his trust in a God who loved him, who he loved in return. That's not-so-average. You know, one of my all-time favorite quotes remains the words of Oswald Chambers where he says, faith never knows where it is being led, but it loves and knows the one who is leading. That is deeply profound. It is the key to experiencing and living out the fullness of Romans 8, 28. Trust rooted in love leads to presence. When we let him lead, when we're willing to get in to the wheelbarrow, See, he has our best interest in mind. He's seeking to take care of us, and he is trustworthy. If we will step 
fully in. If we'll get in his wheelbarrow. You know, we're not really told if Joseph cried out to God in prison. If he raised his fist at the injustice of Potiphar's wife's false accusations. And the fact, especially since he did the right thing in it, he's still punished. We're not really told if that was part of the journey. But here's what we do know out of Scripture. That all along the way, Joseph recognized the hand of God in everything he was experiencing throughout his life. It's especially notable and recognizable towards the end of his life. After a lot of water has passed under the bridge, Joseph is actually reconciled back to his family. The the story is pretty cool. It's got a lot of nuances to it. I encourage you to read the last part of Genesis and, and get a sense of what actually happens. But there's this moment where Joseph reconnects with the same brothers, the very same brothers who sold him into slavery and lied about it. And he says something that is profound, that demonstrates that Joseph is a wheelbarrow rider. Here's what he says. Genesis 50, verse 19. Don't be afraid. I am in the place of God. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. That's Romans 8, 28. Verse 21, so then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Wheelbarrow rider, a not-so-average Joe, even after experiencing betrayal and some pretty dark spaces and false accusations and the injustices of all that came along with his journey, he trusted God and he waited for God to work good out of it both the bad and the good. He trusted God. Trust is the fruit. Look, our God seeks to redeem every part of our lives. That word redeem is simple, but it's powerful and deep, and it may feel a little churchy, so let me just give you the definition of redeem. It is to recover, exchange, buy back, to obtain the release or restoration of, as from captivity, by paying a ransom. Redeem. This is exactly what God is seeking to do whenever he lives out the Romans 8, 28 reality. He is seeking to redeem and restore whatever is in your life or whatever has been in your life. He is trying and seeking to redeem it, to buy it back, to ransom it, to set it free, to restore it. He is constantly seeking to redeem everything about all of our lives, the things that have happened to us and through us. He's seeking to work towards good. Let's go back to Romans 8, 28 for a moment. The reality is that when we know this, when we know that he works all things for the good of those who love him, everything changes. Do you know this? Do you know he works all things for the good of those who love? If you know it, you will get in his wheelbarrow. If you're not willing to get in the wheelbarrow, the life's wheelbarrow, whether they're dark, whether they're filled with pain or brokenness, if you're not willing to get in, you don't really know this because when you know this, you get in. You demonstrate trust. That's the fruit of a relationship in which you know you are loved. Do you know this? That he has your best interest in mind. He's seeking to take care of you and he can be trusted. Do you know it? Do you believe it? His ability to work good out of all things often first requires us to get in. So that he can work good. And when we know this, we get in. When we don't get in, it's proof we don't really know. We don't believe. We don't trust. 
And I want to be clear about something in this, that God works all things for the good for those who love him. It doesn't say that he works all things out the way we want. That's very different. The, the, the truth is, suffering will always bring pain and loss and grief. It always has it with it. Sin will always be accompanied by sorrow. But under God's control, the eventual outcome will be for our good. What happens in life may not in and of itself feel good or be fun. But God will make it work toward an ultimate good when we trust. We can experience joy in the journey when we love. And love always trusts. So as you're processing this, you may be thinking, okay, wait a second, Sean. You're saying that in Joseph's life, the, the betrayal of his brothers, the, the false accusation of Potiphar's wife, all that prison time, all of that was God working out the best in Joseph's life? Yeah, absolutely, exactly what I'm saying. See, Joseph could have looked at all of that and decided that God didn't care, that God wasn't engaged, he wasn't going to provide, and he said, I'm not going to trust, and he could have decided to not get in the wheelbarrow the first time, or the second time, or the third time. But he did. Even when he couldn't see around him, even when he couldn't make sense or know exactly how it all worked out, he still got in. And every time he did, God moved. God showed up. God provided. God led him through the complexity for good and for his glory. It's how it works in the dynamic. Every time we step in, God is working behind the scenes to make sure that all of the stuff in our lives, the mistakes, the tragedies, can still result in good for those who love him. And sometimes God working good is something that happens fast and we can see it and we can celebrate it. But there are other moments where God is working good, but we won't see it and we won't know it until eternity. Until the sun rises. Until the sun returns. And maybe today you're actually walking in a space that feels really dark. You're in a space where it feels like you're swinging from good to awful and awful to good and good to awful. Or maybe you're, you're dealing with the realities of being a victim of other people's choices. Abuse. Injustice. Dishonesty or malice. And, and tragedy has all but broken you. Or maybe you're in a space today where you feel like you've just been dealt a bad hand in life. At work, at home, your family. If any of that rings true for you, if any of that connects to the journey that you have been on, I want you to know this. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Never forget it. He moves wounds and turns them into scars, as Beth so beautifully led us to understand last week. He raises and brings back things that have been dead back to life. But all of that requires trust. All that requires an element of trust. And when we trust, it, it brings along with it presence. And it's in his presence that we experience him working all things for the good. When we position Jesus to be in charge of our life as boss, when we get into his wheelbarrow, then everything we experience, all of it can be worked towards good. But we have to choose to trust. We have to choose to believe. We have to choose to get in the wheelbarrow not just say we think he can. So let's go to so what? How, how do we actually end up in a relationship that's marked by trust? How do we have a relationship like Joseph where we actually sit in the wheelbarrow? And I actually want to leave you just with three things that will position all of us to live a not-so-average life today, this week, and weeks, and months, and years to come. 
The first thing is simply to get in. Just get in. He, he has your best interest in mind. So obey. Do whatever he says. If Jesus is already your Lord, this should come automatically that we do whatever he says. But sometimes we need a gentle reminder to go back and actually do exactly what he says. And when we do, he's able to move. When he says step, step. When he says get in, get in. He has our best interest in mind. That will always require trust, though. Especially when we, when we can't see everything around us. The, the time is just dark and we can't make sense of everything. Or, or when the risk is high. Or when we feel overwhelmed. Regardless of the circumstances, step. Do what he says. Obey. I'm going to tell you, it's a lot easier to do that when we've had the intentional investment of a regular relationship and connection along the way. We just spend time with him and talk with him and read scripture and pray. Without that, it's a lot harder to step in and get in. I would not have been able to follow my hunting buddy out into the darkness of the woods, not knowing exactly where we're going, if I had not previously built a level of relationship and trust. And the same is true with God. It's a lot easier to step out in faith and trust and get in when we have established and invested in that relationship. But it all starts with getting in. The second thing is to stay seated. I encourage you to stay seated. This is a, a, this is a space not to embrace fear, not to decide to jump halfway, jump out halfway. You just stay seated. When, when it comes to the wheelbarrow realities of life, focus on who he is, not what is. When we can focus on who he is, what is doesn't matter. One of the realities of why people didn't get into the wheelbarrow with the great Blondin is they were focused on what was rather than who he was. That's why his mom could get into the wheelbarrow. She focused on who he was, not what was. And, and the same has to be true with God. Focus on who he is, not what is. Don't get distracted. Stay seated in the process. And don't jump out halfway. That's not a good idea. Be willing to lean into the complexity by choosing to trust and believe in who he is, not what we experienced that is around us. Get in and stay seated. Along the way, maintain a perspective that, that often what God orchestrates and allows in our journey is not just about us. Joseph got there. His ability to say, look, look, I am in the place of God. What you intended for harm, he intended for good. That's his understanding that it's not about him only. Yeah, he, he benefited, he grew, but those around him benefited. He rescued his people from famine. And God wants to lead you into spaces where it'll impact you, but impact those around you. So get in and stay seated. He's trying to take care of you, which gets us to the third thing. Wait well. Wait well. This is an issue of patience. It's an issue of perseverance. It, it, it's a space of waiting. Look, it may take time for God to fulfill his promises. But I'm going to tell you, he always does what he says he's going to do. So wait well. Tr understand he, he can be trusted. Be willing to wait in spaces where you're stuck between the promise and the provision. Wait well. Joseph had the dream that he would rule his brothers and they would bow down to him at the age of 17. At the age of 30... He began to lead in Egypt second only to Pharaoh. And it would be at least another seven years. Seven years of plenty leading to seven years of famine before he would be reconnected to his family. And he would see the fulfillment of that dream as a teenager brought about more than 20 years later. 
My friends, wait well. God always does what he says. Be willing to wait for him to work good out of all the things. Endure the hard parts. Celebrate the moments where he's providing pain-free moments, but endure the painful ones along the way. Not letting the good or the bad drive your relationship. Don't let a random branch to the face change the relationship along the way. Choose a posture of trust rooted in love and experience the fullness of his presence in your life. Be a not-so-average Joe in that dynamic. In order for that to happen, get in, stay seated, and wait well. I want to invite you to consider a question this week that will help you lean further into those realities. Where is Jesus inviting you to trust him next? To trust him. Not to trust yourself, not to trust in other things. Trust him. To put your trust in him. To be the person who gets into his wheelbarrow and lets him lead. Let's him push and move along the complexities of life. Where is he inviting you to do that? Whenever we're willing to step in, he's able to work good out of those moments. Whenever we choose our own way, whenever we choose to trust ourselves, we're out of position for God to work good out of everything. He may still want to try to do that, but he has to work around our mess. It is far easier to step in fullness of trust out of a relationship of love where we get in, stay seated, and wait well. But that requires us to step in trust. If I had chosen not to follow my hunting buddy into the woods, he would not have been able to teach me how to hunt. And in turn, I would not have been able to teach my children how to hunt. And again, the process that God leads us on in a journey, when we step by trust, is not just a ripple for us, it's a ripple for those around us. So be willing to take that next step of trust along the way. Joseph was willing to do that. Joseph chose God's way He chose trust in him, even when the stakes and the pain and loss were high. One of the greatest sacrificial moments for Joseph is when he extended forgiveness to his brothers. And I don't know if somewhere along the way your journey has a space that's marked by pain or wounding or injustice, and you're actually positioned to forgive. Until you release and forgive, you're going to be stuck. Most of the time when we get stuck spiritually, I believe it's rooted in some component of a lack of trust. We may feel like it shows up, okay, it's obedience, it's pride, it's doubt, it's selfishness, but if we strip all of that away, more often than not, we end up in a space where we just weren't willing to trust. And whatever you're facing today, especially it's an area of forgiveness, be willing to trust in God and release and forgive. It doesn't mean your relationship gets restored right away, but when we forgive, we release the other people to God so that he can work good out of that dynamic. Joseph chose to forgive. And if you want to experience a not-so-average life, you want to navigate the complexities that you see coming or you're sitting in now in a way that is God-honoring and God-pleasing, then have the courage and boldness to be a not-so-average Joe like Joseph. Choose to be someone who gets in, stays seated, and waits well, even when you can't see, even when it's dark, Choose to remain in a posture of abiding in his presence. Choose to trust, to trust in him more than anything else. If you want to live a less than average, mediocre life, don't bother getting into his wheelbarrow. But if you want to live a not so average life, then get in, stay seated, and wait well. It's in the space of sitting within his wheelbarrow like that, that our soul thrives. Our soul is at peace 
even in the complexity of what is around us. Because our focus and our hope is on Him, in Him alone. Be willing to get in, stay seated, and wait well. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your love. I thank you for demonstrating that and sending Jesus. I thank you that he demonstrated his love in going to the cross. And I thank you that through all of that, you seek to redeem. And that you're working all things for the good of those who love. I pray that out of your love for us, we would love you. I pray, Father, that you would be able to work good in everything because we sit in a posture of trust no matter the complexity, no matter how high the stakes are, no matter the cost associated, we choose to place our trust in you and you alone. And out of that space, because of a posture of trust rooted in love, you would work not only good in our lives, but glory for you. So wherever you're asking us each to step next in trust, Jesus, I pray that you'd give us wisdom, enable us to step in boldness and courage, but do so knowing, knowing that you are worthy of that trust. You have our best interest in mind and you seek to take care of us along the way. We love you. We pray these things in your name and everybody said, amen.